Please do sit down. As you sit down, if you could be turning back to Genesis uh, chapter 3, you'll find that on page 5 of the uh, Church Bibles. Uh, there's also, I think, a handout inside the, the service sheet, so you can use that to follow along as, as well, if you would like. Now, most people, I think, know that back in the 18th century, Englishmen grew rich on slavery, on the slave trade. Uh, whole cities like Liverpool and Bristol grew rich on the slave trade. But I wonder if you also knew that uh, in the 19th century, once that had been dealt with to, uh, to some extent, uh, Englishmen were continuing to grow rich, this time from drug trafficking, the sort of thing that we condemn in Colombia and Mexico today. The British government back then actively encouraged and supported Traders such as William Jardine were importing 40,000 chests of opium a year into China. And when the Chinese understandably tried to stop all this and put an end to the the harm that it was causing, uh, what did we do? Uh, Well, we sent Navy warships to to bombard their coastal towns. Uh, That's how we ended up with Hong Kong. Now, as we reflect on things like that, I've always thought that one of the better things about being English is that many of us are somewhat embarrassed about being English. Perhaps you disagree. Uh, No matter. My aim this morning is not focused on making you feel ashamed of your English ancestry. My aim is actually much bigger than that. Uh, I want us this morning to, to all feel thoroughly ashamed of the entirety of our human ancestry, across all human experience, going back right to the beginning. That's what we're aiming to do this morning. Now, I was arguing last week that this passage from Genesis chapter 3, which we're looking at over two weeks, is is God's means for us to uncover the truth about sin. You may have come along both last week and this week with only a, a hazy idea, perhaps, of what sin is all about. Well, this is your chance to get some some clear answers to some key questions about sin. What is it? Where did it come from? And most importantly, I guess, what can be done about it? Last time we were thinking about the first of those questions. What is sin? And if you came along thinking that perhaps sin is a word used only by religious people who were trying to make you feel bad about having fun, then I hope you were suitably shocked We saw last week that sin is actually a deeply unattractive thing. Sin is about lies and falsehood from start to finish. It begins by being deceived and cheated by lies and half-truths about God. It then spreads. And at the centre, sin is doing something desperately and dangerously foolish. It's an act of rebellious aggression against the source of life even, the provider of all life and blessing. And I argued then that the pattern of sin in Genesis 3 is the pattern of all sin. It's the pattern of our sin, uh, wherever and whenever it takes place. But what we didn't look at last time was what that sin began in history and the seriousness of that too. What is God teaching us in this passage about the origin of sin? And of course we need to look again at what can be done about this terrible thing. So that's what we're going to tackle this week, the final two of those questions under two headings. Where did sin come from? And I hope we're going to see the basic answer here in Genesis 3 is it came from Adam, with us sharing in the family shame. 
And what can be done about it? What has been done about it, in fact? Well, I hope we're going to be reminded, even if briefly, that God has acted here. He has acted, second heading, in Jesus, with us sharing in his sonship. Now, as we begin on those, I should warn you as we start to look at the first of those things, uh, that there are issues surrounding the origin of sin and evil that have uh, stretched the minds of some of the greatest intellects in church history. So I should warn you that that Genesis 3 isn't here to settle every one of those issues. In other words, uh, we may find aspects of this passage frustrating in some ways. I think I do. You know, I would like... Uh, There are questions that I would like to be answered here which aren't answered here. What this passage will do if we stick to the text is give us a basic answer to the question that we're asking. Where did sin come from? It came from Adam. And we are caught up in that sin and all its consequences whether we like it or not. That's where we're heading. That's what we're going to conclude in the argument from Genesis chapter 3, unfolds in three stages or steps according to the the three scenes that we were looking at last week. You may remember if you were here last week that the first scene in this passage is a dialogue between a serpent and the woman that God has made. You may also remember that this scene is almost deliberately, comically strange. Look again at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said, he said, he spoke. The serpent spoke. There's a great moment in the, the Pixar film uh, Up, which you may have seen, uh, where the elderly widower called Carl Hendrickson and the young, earnest young wilderness explorer called Russell meet a dog on the Venezuelan highlands. Hey, look, he's trained, says Russell, and goes to the dog and says, sit, shake, speak. And at this point, Russell is expecting a bark from the dog, but the dog says, hi there. And the two of the humans, two humans almost jump out of their skins. And at verse 1 of Genesis 3, we too should almost jump out of our skins with surprise. And the strange unexpectedness of this scene is making a negative point for us. You see, it shows us uh, where we shouldn't look for the origin of sin. It shows us that if we're hunting for the moral origin of sin, we won't find it in anything before this point. We won't find it in anything before chapter 3. Glance back to chapter 1 and verse 31, for example. God created a world that was very good. In chapter 2, the emphasis is very clear that the plan and purpose for that world is the spread of life and blessing. These are good things. And God placed the man and the woman in the garden to work it and to further that purpose in the world. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Things only go wrong here. Sin is a rude, unexpected intrusion into all that's happened before, separate from the stated purpose of creation. That's the point that the first scene is making for us. How did sin begin then? Well, that takes us to the second scene, verses 6 to 8. This is where we see the heart of the answer. Sin began with the woman and the man. They were alone when they did it. They actually did it. And they were changed by it, with consequences for us all. 
they were alone. The serpent seems to have slipped away at this point, so it's, it's not there, sort of egging them on or anything like that. No one is with the man and the woman, holding a gun to their heads, making them do this thing. No one has spiked the woman's tea with alcohol. No one has drugged her. Indeed, the description there in verse 6 shows her very calm, you know, rationally thinking about this, in full possession of her mental faculties. Verse 6, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They actually did it. That's the point. No one else did it. As we saw last week, they were, they were greedy for the knowledge that wasn't appropriate for them to have as creatures. They, they wanted that knowledge of good and evil that's appropriate for the Creator alone. They wanted to be like God, rivals to God, pushing him out of their way, thinking that they might run his creation their way and for their purposes. And of the two of them, I guess it was the man, Adam, who held primary responsibility. After all, he was the one explicitly warned not to do this. But although the focus is all on them at this point, our problem is that we cannot cut ourselves off from what they did. This thing they did, it changed them. And that had consequences for us all. You can see the change itself there in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now this, I guess, is the beginning of fashion. Uh, which tells you something about fashion, doesn't it? But I guess the point, the point here is that they seem to have grabbed the, the first things that they could lay their hands on to hide themselves behind. These uh, large fig leaves which had sort of heavy indentations in them. It must have been very, very uncomfortable. In other words, they must have desperately felt the need to, to protect themselves, to hide themselves at this point. Suddenly, a change has happened. They're vulnerable before one another. Suddenly, they're afraid of one another. The unity between them, under God, has been broken. It's been shattered. And we can see why that's happened. They've tried, you see, to make themselves like God's. And as they've done that, now they've set themselves up as rivals to one another. What's even more serious, of course, is that they've set themselves up as rivals to God himself. And verse 8, they're now feeling the need to protect themselves from him, vainly trying to hide behind the trees. What's serious for us is that this sin changes them in such a deep and long-lasting way that it passes on to the next generation. It catches up the whole of humanity... Flesh gives birth to flesh, as Jesus puts it. Let's take a look at um, the progress of that. You can see the beginning of it over in chapter 4, if you turn over. As the story progresses, the man and the woman give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, And the rivalry that they experience first in the garden, the man and the woman, then passes on to their offspring. You can see here that Cain is very angry with his brother. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, we see him struggling with sin, much as his mother did before him. The Lord warns him, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And just as she did, he loses that battle. 
And this time the consequence is, is now explicitly violent as he attacks his brother and kills him. Now the problem here for, for oncoming generations is made explicit at the beginning of chapter 5. Adam is now having children in his likeness. That's verse 3. In his own likeness, in his own image. What then follows this is a horrible perversion of God's stated purpose for his creation. You might remember that God's stated purpose for his creation was that life and blessing would flow out to all the corners of the earth as the man and the woman worked together. Well, instead of blessing flowing out to the corners of the world through the work of humanity, we get death and violence multiplying and spreading. And if you turn over to chapter 6, verse 11, you can see God's own description of how the earth is actually being filled now. So end of verse 11 of chapter 6. The earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So this is the, the sober conclusion that we can draw from the book of Genesis. The the moral responsibility for the origin of sin lies with those who actually did it, who were changed by it, and thereby affected all of their offspring and descendants. And that includes us. This is the thing that we cannot escape from. We're caught up in this, whether we like it or not. And does that seem unfair to you? I imagine it may well do. And I can understand that. Uh, but as if to anticipate our objections, there is the final scene from our passage this morning. So please turn back to that. This is back in chapter 3, verses 9 to 13. This final scene, as we were saying last week, is humanity on trial for what they've done. And you can see that it doesn't take the man long under cross-examination to admit what happened. He did eat the fruit he was told and warned not to eat. But he blames the woman. Verse 12. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And see how he even goes so far as to imply blame against the Lord his God. Look at it again. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the woman responds in a very similar fashion. She did eat the true fruit true. She did too. You, you know, she admits that. But she blames the serpent. End of verse 13. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, I wonder if uh, you, like me, are feeling some sympathy for the, the man and the woman here. If, for example, uh, we men might well hear what the man says and think, yes, that's right. It was the woman's fault, wasn't it? And who put the woman there? Yes. It was God. Or we might hear what the woman says and think, yes, that's right too. That's the root of the problem. The serpent. You might even add to what the woman said, as, as a number of people said to me on the way out of church last week. Yes, and who created the serpent? And indeed we might add to that from our, our perspective, which is now many thousands of years later, and say, and why are you including me in this? I wasn't even there. 
It wasn't me. It was him. Why should I, why should I suffer from Ad, for Adam's sin? As I think about it, I can hear a cry welling up inside me that makes me shudder when I hear it on the lips of my children. It's just not fair. And I suppose we could add to that even still further. After all, isn't, isn't God as creator sovereign over all this? Uh, and I would agree with that. You know, he created the world from nothing and is the, and therefore in some way responsible for everything that happens within it. Is he not therefore also morally implicated in the, in the craftiness of the serpent and the, the sin of the man and the woman and every sin which follows? Is that, is that not true? But the writer of Genesis will have none of any of this. None of these excuses are admissible. In the end, the moral responsibility falls on the man and the woman and perhaps also the serpent. And of them it falls primarily on Adam. And we are Adam's offspring. And there are no excuses. Let's draw all of this together. The answer that matters is this. Sin began with Adam and continues with us. We see that from the first scene, that the moral responsibility for sin cannot be found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 with God and his stated purposes for creation. It only comes in here in Genesis 3, an unexpected and rude interruption. We see it most especially from scene 2, the moral responsibility for sin lies with those who actually do it and are changed by it. And then scene three, there are no excuses. Now I know that this may frustrate us in some ways, and it certainly, almost certainly does frustrate us, but you know, there are all sorts of questions we might be wanting to ask at this point. So we want to know why the serpent was crafty. We want to know more about this, why, how and why this extraordinary thing happened in history. But what this passage compels us to accept is that, that any unanswered questions here simply in the end, do not matter. I want us to draw out three big implications from what we've seen this morning about the origin of sin. And the first of those is understanding. Understanding both ourselves and our world. I do think that Adam's sin helps us to understand ourselves as a, a sort of curious mixture of self-promotion and self-destruction. I wonder if you noticed that in the man and the woman. So there's certainly the self-promotion there, isn't there? They have a lust for self-promotion. They're grasping for it in the fruit. But in the end, that ends up being self-destruction. They just end up harming themselves. We can start to see through this description of what happened, uh, why that might be so. It happens because they've opened up hostility to the one in whose image they were made. In a sense, we might say that they are declaring wars, in some sense, against themselves. I think we can see this in ourselves very much. I certainly see it very much in myself, this curious mixture between self-promotion on the one hand and self-destruction on the other. I find myself constantly either bigging myself up in different circumstances or tearing myself down. It's a mixture of self-promotion and self-harm. Sometimes, ingeniously, I manage it 
all in the same instant. It's the key, I think, to my dysfunctional psychology and probably the dysfunctional psychology of many others. Adam's sin also helps us to understand the world we live in much better. The tendency to destruction and division that we see on the news every day and indeed throughout all of history. Uh, My brother came to stay recently. We were chatting one evening trying to think of, of, of some country, at least one country in the world, where there, that hasn't been involved in some sort of enormous genocidal atrocity in its history at some point in the past. But it was a, it was a very difficult thing to do. It was actually very difficult to go around the world trying to think of a place where that hasn't happened. Britain, no, we can rule that out quite straight away. Russia, no. What about Sta- Spain, perhaps? Spain, relaxed, fun sun-loving Spain. I wonder if you know something of Spain's history uh, back between 1533 and 1588, for example, the Spanish armies, apparently responsible for the native population in the New World, dropping from 80 million at the beginning of that period down to, do you know what the figure might be? 10 million. 70 million people destroyed in 55 years. That's a breathtaking rate of violent destruction. This is a striking scene in in the Woody Allen film, Hannah and Her Sisters, and an artist called Frederick uh, says this, someone's just come in late one evening, and he says to her, you missed a TV show about Auschwitz. More gruesome film clips, more puzzled intellectuals declaring their mystification. But the reason they could never answer the question, how could it possibly happen, is that it's the wrong question. Given what people are, the question really is, the question is, why doesn't it happen more often? Now that, I think, is exactly right. That, that's Genesis 3. That's a Genesis 3 question. Given what people are, the question is, why doesn't it happen more often? It's remarkable, isn't it? Academics sweat over these issues. They stretch their minds to understand our psychology, our history, the relationships between peoples and nations. But our sinful nature, passed on to us from Adam, is the simple key which unlocks it all. The second implication is shame. We do resist this, of course. As I suggested earlier, our first reaction to being to being included in the sin of Adam and of the world is to say, it's not fair. You know, I'm not, I never have been a Nazi. I'm not, I never have been Spanish. I'm not, I never have been Adam. I don't even like fruit. I just don't want to have anything to do with this. I don't want to have anything to do with the God who says that I'm a part of this. But Adam's sin should warn us away from that kind of response. To start passing what is effectively a moral judgment on God is, I think, a dangerously bold thing to do. To cast yourself as judge of judge of the universe, it's it's Adam's self-promotion taken to a to an extreme. It's not an attractive position for us to take. And I do think that it leaves those who do it automatically judgmental of those around them. See, once you do that, once you 
declare an independence from the sin that's going on around you. You do have to distance yourself from the rest of the world and its evil. You have to mark yourself out as somehow different and better from them. Now, the only reasonable response here is shame. Now, I know it doesn't come easily to us, but I think we also know what it is. We do understand it, at least. Even in the individualistic West, where we're always trying to suppress this, we know what it is. Families still feel it when someone goes off the rails. There are people in many families who just, you know, just never get talked about. Their name is mentioned and everything goes quiet. We'll know from our own experience that when parents go off the rails, when something bad happens within a family, it affects the whole family. We can't escape it. Nations can feel it too. Not just in trivial ways. We do feel it in trivial ways, as, you know, as when we lose to the Irish at cricket. You know, we do feel that shame very quickly, but it, we should be feeling it in deeper ways too. As we remember our, our slave trading, drug dealing, imperial history, for example, as I was beginning with. But what we're seeing here in Genesis 3 is that as our shame should be much, much deeper and wider than that, It should go back into history much further. It should go right back to the shame of the man and the woman in the garden. And then it should encompass all the vast and ugly multitudes of sins that have piled up over human history. Given what we've become, this is the thing, given what we've become, we should be ashamed of being human. And such a shame, I think, would be a good thing. It would uh, subdue us in our destructiveness. It would quieten us, humble us. And it would lead us away from judgmentalism. It's what I think is the third implication of all this, uh, which is compassion. I was very struck by this quote from the great theologian Jonathan Edwards, who says this about the doctrine we're talking about this morning. This doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than of ourselves. It teaches us that we are all, as we are by nature, companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which under a revelation of divine mercy tends to promote mutual compassion. And that's right, isn't it? Once I share, once I begin to share in the collective shame of all humanity, it does make me change the way I think about people. It, It makes me feel differently about people I once despised. Nevertheless, it's not a happy condition. Such collective shame does remain a miserable and helpless condition, as Edwards put it. It is a condition left on its own of despair. We might echo the words of the Apostle Paul that we began to look at last week. What wretched people we are. What wretched people we are. Who will rescue us from this enormous accumulated body of sin that we are a part of? Well, the answer is, of course, the same as the one we heard last week, and uh, you know it already. Thanks be to God, says the Apostle Paul, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What can be done about it? Well, very briefly, turn forward to Romans chapter 8 with me uh, to be reminded as we finish this morning that there is an answer to all this. Uh, You'll find Romans 8 on page 1,000.
134 of the Church Bibles, there is an answer to this, and that answer is found in Jesus, with us no longer sharing in shame, but sharing in his sonship. And I think when we stop to think about it, this is indeed the only possible answer to this problem. You see, it may well be that, unlike those who are shamelessly defiant, we, uh, we don't want to cut ourselves off from God, so that's a good thing, but we do want to cut ourselves off, rightly want to cut ourselves off from our, from our sinful ancestry. The problem is, how can we do that? You know, we can soon, as soon change our ancestors as we can change our parents. How do we cut ourselves off from that? In other words, the, the, this problem, in, in all its ugly vastness across human history is simply too big for us to deal with on our own. It must take an act of God to deal with it. Indeed, nothing less than a new act of creation and a new humanity within that. But thanks be to God. That is exactly what God does in Jesus. To look at verse 3 here, for example, thanks be to God, an act of God in Jesus taking on flesh in the likeness of sinful humanity, dealing with the guilt and shame that we've been thinking about, dealing with that in his death, condemning our sin in him and not in us. Or glance at verse 11, thanks be to God, an act of God in Jesus, breathing new life into us by his spirit, nothing less than the life of the risen Christ a new humanity. And finally look at verse 15 here. Thanks be to God, an act of God in Jesus, no longer slaves under our sinfulness, but sharing in his sonship, cut off from our sinful ancestry, cut off from all the shame that we've been talking about. Adopted. Adopted into a new family. And this is perhaps the most amazing place to find ourselves, a place where we can call God himself our Father, a place where in Christ we can rediscover a delight in what it means to be human. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do confess that we find uh, these issues of our sinful nature uh, hard to grasp, hard to accept, hard to acknowledge before you. Maybe there are many unanswered questions amongst us this morning, but we pray that uh, you might help us to put those to one side, to accept our responsibility before you, to accept that we are caught up in this, whether we like it or not, to recognise that we are caught up in a miserable and helpless situation that only you can help us out of. And we pray that you might continue to do that. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.